2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8 is the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. We have this treasure in earthen vessels... That the, ex, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the, body of Je- that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, We also believe, therefore also we speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You're having to respond to a questionnaire. The questionnaire is, what is the most glorious word in all of Scripture? Some of you would probably answer love or grace or Jesus or the cross. These are all glorious words of Scripture. William Barclay says that the most glorious word in Scripture is the conjunction, but... Now, that may seem a little strange to to you, but notice how it is applied in verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In each instance, it's saying, in essence... You may be at the end of your rope, but God. And the message of this this passage is that God has the last word. Uh, Gillen Strickland is right when he said, I think, that, that that God kept talking when his book went to press. So that... When the, when the world said its worst, God had something left to say. When the world had announced its uh, uh, sentences and, and proclaimed its executions, God had the final word. 
And the crucifixion is a, is a supreme example of that. For after Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod and Judas had said their worst words, God had the last word. And so Pilate said, I want you to put his body in a tomb and seal it up and make, make it as secure as you can. And they did that. And they rolled this unmovable stone, quote, unquote, in front of the tomb and said, as they dusted off their hands, that's the final chapter in the book. We're going to close the book on this man once and for all. And after they had said their worst, God had the last word. For there is a divine continuation in every perplexity. I want you to get that. There is a divine continuation in every perplexity. Halford Luckett said that you can test a man's character and his religious faith by how he uses that conjunction. Some of us use it as an excuse for quitting rather than as an encouragement for going on. How many times have you said, I'd like to do that work in the church, but you know how busy I am. I'd like to take that responsibility, uh, uh, that volunteer assignment, but you know I just don't have the time. But this is God's Word, and it's a glorious Word. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, raised you up together with Him and caused you to sit with Him in heavenly places. It is a glorious word, and you should be able to say it in life's darkest hours. For example, it's a glorious word, is the word but, because it suggests that, that attitude is more important than fact. It suggests that what happens to you is not as important as how you take it. And the Apostle Paul was exhibit A with regard to this. When a door slammed in his face, he looked for a window to crawl through. And he had this God-given desire to preach the gospel to the whole world. Can you imagine how frustrated he must have felt on the occasion of his first imprisonment? And he had, this, had the world in his heart, and he was confined to the four bleak walls of a, of a prison cell. That was the fact. But the attitude that he had when he came to that was this. I may be bound, but the Word of God is not bound. And he had this strong conviction that, that God would work something out of that for his own purpose and, his, and, and in his own good. And the confession of his heart was that, that God was going to take care of that and something great was going to be accomplished. And so in Acts chapter 16, he and Silas are taken prisoner with a false arrest and they're brutally beaten and placed in stocks. And the fact of that was that everything about it was unjust and cruel but the attitude was an attitude of courage and his commitment of praise and faith turned that raw deal into a revival. And on another occasion, in another prison, 
he said, the, the circumstances that have happened to me are just opportunities for the gospel to be spread in the world. In other words, the Apostle Paul saw life as a series of great opportunities cleverly disguised as unsolvable problems. It's not what happens to you that matters. It's the attitude by which you come to what happens to you. And so when life hits you hard, understand that there is a vast difference between bending and breaking. And never entertain for a moment the Pollyannish idea that the people of faith will never be discouraged. But the faith they have is this, that God may allow them to be bent, but He will never allow them to be broken. And that's the attitude by which they accept what life brings them. It's the kind of uh, Daniel's faith that turned a lion's den into a living room. It was a kind of faith of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that took the heat out of life's fiery ordeal. That, that attitude is more important than fact. And that how you accept life's circumstances is more important than the circumstances themselves. That's what this text is about. It is a glorious word in the second place because it suggests that the providence of God is progressive and you will never understand it until God is finished with it. It's like looking at a parade through the knothole in the fence. Our vision is limited because of where we are. And if we could get above the fence, maybe look down on the parade from a tall building and see the whole event, see the end and the beginning and, and, and see it all in perspective, we'd have a different view concerning the parade. Our vision is often limited by where we are. Therefore, it is wrong to say that something is good or bad until God is finished with it. Now had the Apostle Paul evaluated his life from a Roman prison, his evaluation would have been this, the conclusion would have been this, I see no ray of hope for me. Or if he had evaluated the events of his life after one of his brutal beatings, he would have said, there's no fairness to life, there's no justice to life. Waiting on God is never wasted. Sometimes you can evaluate something too quickly. Um, the president of Baylor University, Pat Neff, several years ago told about two school teachers who got together on an occasion of their uh, class reunion. They hadn't seen each other for a long time and they were, they were talking. One of them said to the other, said, I've gotten married since I saw you last. And her friend said, oh, that's good. She said, well, I don't know about that. My husband is twice my age. She said, oh, well, that's bad. And she said, no, I don't know about that. He's a multimillionaire. She said, oh, well, that's good. <laughs> she said, well, I don't know about that. He promised he wasn't going to give me a penny of his money. She said, well, that's bad. She said, well, I don't know about that. He did build me a $250,000 house. She said, oh, well, that's good. She said, well, I don't know about that. My house burned down last week. She 
And you say, well, that's bad. He said, I don't know about that. He was in it. I mean, you... <laughs> it's sometimes wrong to say something is good or something is bad until God is finished with it. When Roger Staubach was quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, he brought the Cowboys back from defeat to victory 40 times in the last quarter. Nineteen times he brought the Cowboys to victory from defeat in the last four minutes of the game. And one time he snatched victory from the jaws of defeat in the last second of the game. Now I know Yogi Berra wasn't quoting scripture and he probably wasn't inspired, but what he said was true, it ain't over till it's over. So that the providence, the stream of God's working is always moving. Sometimes it moves swiftly, sometimes it moves slowly, but it is always moving. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, we're beaten, we're knocked down, but we're not whipped. We're perplexed. We're not destroyed. We have the confidence that God is in control and His providence has not yet been completed. This is a glorious word in the third place because it suggests that success is always found on the far side of failure and triumph is found on the other side of tragedy. The president of IBM was asked one time by a young man, what is the secret of your success? And the president of IBM responded, you double your rate of failure. Now the guy asking that question was just a young man who later became the author of the marvelous bestseller, religious bestseller, A Touch of Wonder. That man's name was Arthur Garden. And he said, when he responded to me that way, I was so shocked by his answer, I, didn't, I couldn't even reply, I couldn't even respond. He said, I just stood there numb. And the president of IBM went on to say, we make a big mistake when we think that failure is the enemy of success. It is not the enemy of success, it is a teacher to success. It's a harsh one, but it is, a, it is the best one, he said. For when failure comes, you can either be discouraged or you can be taught. And then he made this statement, listen. Remember, young man, that success is found on the far side of failure. The Apostle Paul wanted to be a success. He wanted to be righteous. He had a burning, a zeal that consumed him. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he wanted to be perfectly right. And he sought to do that, but he failed. And out of that failure, he found triumph. He found triumph on the other side of tragedy. I have in my library several books by Harry Emerson Fosdick. Now Fosdick did something in the mid-40s that was revolutionary. He revolutionary style homiletically in the 40s. He took the truths that we conceptualize and he applied them practically to the, to the stresses that come in life. 
supportive ministry, supportive sermons. Now he didn't learn that in some homiletic class. He didn't learn it in seminary. He hadn't been taught in seminary. But when he was just a young preacher, he fell into dark period of depression. He contemplated suicide. And out of that experience, he learned to take the truths of the gospel and apply them to the stresses of life. And he found triumph on the other side of tragedy. Benjamin Franklin went to London because he was told that he would find funding to, 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 to start a printing business in Philadelphia. When he got to London, he found that he had been duped. He had been deceived. deceived. There was no funding there. It took him 18 months to get passage back to the United States, but during that 18 months, he worked with a printer and learned the art of printing, became successful. He found success on the other side of failure. Abraham Lincoln failed in every endeavor until he became president. J.C. Penney was burned out in Chicago, lost his will to live, was in a hospital waiting to die. And he heard some people singing out in the halls. Some church folks had come to sing some gospel songs to the patients there. And they heard, he heard them singing, What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. He found the will to live there. And he got out of the hospital after having found success on the far side of failure. Became the great uh, merchandise giant that, that he was. Babe Ruth struck out twice as many times as he hit home runs, but he kept swinging. The author of the book, Gone with the Wind, was turned down by seven publishers who said that her book didn't have, quote, marketing appeal. But she kept trying, and on the eighth time, she found success on the far side of failure. You read the biographies of the great men, so-called, or you look through the Bible at the heroes of the faith, and almost without exception, there are people who have found that there is triumph on the other side of tragedy. That's what this text is about. It says that you may be at the end of your rope, but God is still in control. There is one last thought. It's a glorious, glorious word because it looks to the future with hope, with optimism. Now the Apostle Paul says that we're saved by hope, and what he means by that is that, that if your saving faith is such that you live in hopeful anticipation, it will save your life. It will. And if there ever was a man who lived with a hopeful anticipation, it was the Apostle Paul. He was the number one optimist. He said, we don't look at the things that are seen. We look at what's not seen. We look at the reality that lies behind life's difficult circumstances. He's saying, why, one of these days, he's going to raise us up to heaven. I mean, he had this optimistic, hopeful outlook. Now, Robert Schuller has a book called Life Changers. Now, I'm not advocating that you read everything Robert Schuller has written or believe all of it, but he does have an interesting com comment in this little book, Life Changers. He, used, he tells about how the old farmer's almanac 
became popular. Some of you may use that plant in your garden, the old farmer's almanac. Some of you may not be old farmers, but you're old, and you may use the, the old farmer's almanac. He said it, it was in 1883, and this guy was charged with the responsibility of predicting the weather for the following year. When you was a kid growing up, did you have one of those calendars that your mother hung in the kitchen that told what, you know, the whole year's weather forecast was on it? You, you, I, you know, you could turn over there August the 2nd and it'd tell what kind of weather we we're going to have. It was amazing. I couldn't figure out how they could do that. Well, this guy was responsible for predicting the weather for the following year, and it was, it was July. He'd, he'd worked through July the, the 12th, he was tired, he, he wanted to go home, so he, he said, well, I'll just come back and pick up tomorrow, July the 13th. And just as he started to leave, this young guy came in and said, the printer wants that now. He said, the printer says he has to have it tonight. And he said, he, had to, he has to have at least through July the 13th. And the guy said, well, heck, that's just one more night. Put something in there yourself. He said, your guess is as good as mine. Just, just put anything in there. So the young guy predicted the weather for July the 13th. And this is what he put. Rain, hail, and snow. That was his guess. Now, the, the almanac went to print, and when the senior editor got that thing, he went crazy. He said, this is going to ruin us. We're barely able to keep our head above the water. And when, when people read that, they know that it's not going to be rain, hail, and snow on July the 13th. Well, when July the 13th came around and there was rain, hail, and snow, and the people realized that that had been predicted 14 months in advance, there was a rush on the Farmer's Almanac and it became an instant hit. That's kind of a humorous way to make this point. Watch this. When the future is in doubt, why do we always predict the worst? If I went down this aisle today and I ask you individually, what's it going to be like in your life next year? Most of you would think immediately, I'm afraid something bad is going to happen. For the way we view life is from a negative perspective. It's going to be bad. It's bad now. It's going to get worse. Why is it that when the future is in doubt, what we put down is rain, hail, and snow? When the odds are totally against that. But that's, the, that's our mindset. And ultimately, our faith in God is at stake here. For cannot the God who clothed the lilies of the field and watches the tiny sparrow, can he not take care of us? And so the Apostle Paul took a look around him and the circumstances were, the facts were terrible, the situation was bleak and dark, and his prediction of the future was bright and glorious because he knew that glorious word that indicates God is in control. William Cooper wrote the 
the song that's in your hymn book, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. The people who know something about hymnology at the seminary in the class one day said that, that most people were convinced that William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper, that William Cooper was insane. Well, that's another story, but one night William Cooper was at the point of despair and he called a cabbie in London to come get him. He was going to go down to the wharf, to the dock, and jump in and drown himself. It just so happened that the cabbie was kind of new. He didn't know that much about life. It was a heavy fog. And he got lost. And he wandered around all over London trying to find this place where William Cooper's going to kill himself. And finally Cooper got so upset he said, take me back. <laughs> so they wandered around, finally wound up right at the very place he left. And William Cooper went in and wrote this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are filled with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain, for God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. The most glorious word in all of Scripture is the word but. For it says that even though you can't understand it, God, being His own interpreter, will one day explain it. So how am I to face life? I face it as a Christian with an understanding that on the road of God's truth, on the one side is a ditch of despair. On the other side is the ditch of a kind of a pseudo-false polyanism that says there's no problems, everything is great. But in the center of the road of God's truth is this fact, that attitude is more important than event. That the providence of God moves in progression and you can't judge life until He's finished with it. And on the other side of failure is success, on the backside of tragedy is triumph, so I can lift up my head as a believer and walk in hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the support of the gospel that reminds us that you have your final word and that when we've closed the book and have given up, 
you have yet something to say. When we've reached the end of our rope, you are there to take us in the everlasting arms and to accomplish what you desire for the world through us. Give us that confidence and that faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Would you look here, please? There are three invitations this morning. One invitation is an invitation for you to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. I know it takes a great deal of courage to claim Jesus by faith, to trust Him. God will give you that courage, that faith. You'll exercise the first step to come this morning publicly to say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to trust Him for my salvation. I want to place my faith in the hands that can control life, in the hands that can save. Jesus died on the cross for your sin, but you've got to appropriate that gift by faith. Maybe you've done it privately. It's just not completed until you do it publicly. I ask you to come do that. You may have been praying about placing your life in the church here. You live in our community. You'll want to do that this morning because God has a special place where he has his faith lived out. That's in the church. Come and place your life here if God leads you. Or maybe to rededicate your life to Christ. You've been unhappy with your life and the way you've lived it. You just want to recommit yourself to the Lord. We'll give you that opportunity as we stand. We invite you to come.